Oh, you're welcome, Neil. I don't know how you pull off the country thing, Neil, but you do. This yes. is hell. All right, then. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. And man, yesterday did I stare into that abyss. I got really, really depressed and angry about not doing, not being able to do yesterday's show. Got really bummed out about it. Went home, sequestered myself away in my lodge, and... Uh, when I stared into that abyss that is known as TV, Alex, I saw three things. One, Bernie Sanders dropping out of the presidential race. Two, Whoopi Goldberg asking Bernie Sanders if, unlike Hillary Clinton, he would be supporting Joe Biden in this presidential run. And then, later on in the evening, I got to see Stephen Colbert ask the same dumbass question, which is based on a lie. So, yeah, staring into the abyss so you don't have to. I took one for all of you last night. Today on This Is Hell, we are continuing our series of interviews with correspondents, contributors, past guests, and maybe some people who have never been on our show before to find out what the coronavirus pandemic is like where they are, what's happening in their community and within their own lives during this age of the virus. We started the segment a couple of weeks ago when we spoke with our man in San Juan, Dave Buchan who has been reporting to us on all things Puerto Rico since the 20th century. Then last week, we talked to our correspondent in Budapest, Todd Williams, who has been reporting to us from Hungary for some 20 years. So after reports from Puerto Rico about how the island was still reeling from the two hurricanes that made landfall in 2018, as well as an earthquake earlier this year, they suddenly had to deal with coronavirus brought by tourists on cruise ships. After our report from Hungary covering Prime Minister Viktor Orban's latest power grab under the guise of COVID-19 public health and safety protocols, we are going to South Korea this time to find out what's happening in Seoul and hopefully get a dose of some morning calm from our correspondent Mark Flurry. Despite having limited Korean language ability, Mark consistently outscoops the U.S. media. Mark does it with Korean issues by translating and re-reporting Korean headline news. While Mark's interests are in inter-Korean relations, North Korean economic de uh, development, and the U.S. military presence in the Pacific, he is also the co-designer, programmer, and engine creator of the award-winning video game Thumper, the world's most psychedelic rhythm violence game. And you can find out more about Thumper at thumpergame.com, and you can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark A. Flurry. Mark was last on our show nearly two years ago as he, he and his wife have been busy raising their first child. You may remember that last time Mark was on back in April 2018 when there was a historic and historic summit between South's uh, President Moon Jae-in and the North's Kim Jong-un, for which President Trump was, of course, unduly taking credit. And of course, we'll wrap up this week as we do most weeks with the moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin this week. Jeff tells part one of a four-part fiction that closely parallels a certain TV doctor's career from caring professional to right-leaning snake oil salesman. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Anything new by you, Alex? <laughs> what are you drinking? 
Uh, it's supposed to sound like a beer, but it's a Coke Zero. Yeah. God, Coke Zero? How can you drink that crap? I live for filth. Oh, Coke Zero. Ugh. 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 This week's question mail is, but what about the landlords? But what about the landlords? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins 10. Count them 10. This is hell's advertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising or anything you want with the words this is hell. As we're all living in hell right now, what better time to remind others that yes, this is hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. Direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Email it to both of us, Chuck at This Is Hell.com or Alex at This Is Hell.com. Alex, do we have any of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is But what about the landlords? But what about the landlords? Stephen Smith says, What about the landlords? Let's lynch the landlords. Mm. A classic. Classic. Garrett says, Falls to knees in despair, raises shaking fists to the sky, repeatedly shouts, Mao! <laughs> Chris S. says, braise them over low heat in red wine sauce, tender and delicious. Todd K. says, who's got some rope? Chandler H. says, yeet your local landlord. And posted a picture of a, um, oh, damn. It's not a catapult. What's the one that has a little rope on it? A uh, trebuchet. Yes, a trebuchet uh, that is uh, throwing a fireball. I can't believe I remembered that. Yeah, good job. <laughs> I know. Uh, Manuel N. says, off to the Paquetti re-education camps. Adam K. says, and this is uh, in a theme, Mao had the answer to this one. <laughs> Scott S. says, have they considered picking themselves up by their bootstraps and soaring into the heavens? I want to take this moment just to remind everybody that CNN's Frederica Whitfield, for an entire afternoon one day, referred to Maoists as Maoists. It was just a spectacular Saturday evening She might have just been talking about white people. She could have been, and I'd be fine with that. Uh, Jeffrey D. says, yes, they can catch it too. But what about the landlords? But what about the landlords? Wally R. says, well, hold on a sec. Jared Kushner's pounding on the front door. Keves says, just give them a copy of this, get Boots Riley to sign it, into law, and it's the coup song, Kill My Landlord. Fabio L says, they can get a real job, just like everyone else. <laughs> and Dan, Dan T says, I prefer the term land leeches. Thank you very much. You know, extortioners, freeloaders, parasites, vampires, sanguisuges. <laughs> I looked it up. That's a, like an etymological term for leech. Okay. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from Mel following our guest. Again, email us your answer to Chuck at this is hell.com, Alex at this is hell.com. Post it on our Facebook page. Tweet it to us live from Hangover Country. This is hell. I've been trying to gather up the courage to tell you how sorry I am to apologize and beg your forgiveness. But it's very difficult to take responsibility for something as horrible is what my actions have caused. Yes, I finally realized, and I'm willing to admit, the global pandemic is all my fault. I jinxed us, made a couple presumptuous mistakes, and sure enough, despite thinking at the time I might be doing something wrong, I did it anyway, and I hold myself accountable for the novel coronavirus 2019. You're probably wondering how the bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, live stream, and podcast host can cause something as globally destructive as COVID-19. I mean, again, I am broke. Well, it's actually really easy. Anyone could have started this plague. It's just that this time, it was me. See, all things have happened in the past because of what seemingly ins- what seeming insignificant event happened just prior to whatever hellstorm you find yourself in at that moment. That's how things work. For instance, on September 10th, 2001, the day prior to 9-11, I got my hair cut for the first time in 11 years. I always told my girlfriend, if I get my hair cut, something really bad is going to happen, and it did. 9-11 happened. 
Also on September 10th, 2001, Indian actor Amitabh Bachkan was awarded Actor of the Century at the Alexandria Film Festival, so I'm betting that, plus my hair being cut for the first time in 11 years, had something to do with the 9-11 attacks as well. First mistake I made that clearly led to the pandemic was immediately following our annual holiday party at our home that myself and my girlfriend host every year. I posted on our party's event page that the 2020 party, the 2020 party, would happen on December 19th, 2020. When I posted that date, I thought, well, that's a bit presumptuous, a little bit of arrogance. I mean, what if I die between now and then? Then I rationalized. Well, at least I will have left that announcement for my friends to remember me, and I posted it anyway, not realizing it was my first error that led to us sheltering in place and wearing freaking face masks all the time. The second fateful mistake I made was, again, taunting both Kronos, the Titan, and Kronos, the primordial of the Orphic Greek religion, both masters of time, but please, don't confuse them. It's embarrassing for all of us. By announcing on this year's show back on January 25th of this year that it was six months to the day until we would be celebrating our fifth annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, This Is Art, which you probably think it would be the 25th anniversary show, but it's not. That's not how math works. This is zero, so it would be our 24th anniversary. Anyway, I said that it would be taking place, at least I, I thought it would be t- taking place, on Saturday, July 25th of this year, 2020. Who knows, maybe it still will, although I seriously doubt it. Let's hope Kronos and Kronos proved me wrong. Yep, I jinxed all of us, and if my jinx is as powerful as I fear it is, I mean, I jinxed myself a long time ago, and look where it's gotten me. I'm afraid that I will be indoors until at least New Year's, Kronos and Kronos willing. So now I have mustered the courage. I'm finally brave enough to admit it is all my fault. And I'm more than willing to beg for your forgiveness because I am having difficulty forgiving myself for jinxing us all through my transgressions against time. That's when I found out the U.S. actually knew the virus had broken out back in November, that President Trump was told in his daily intelligence briefing in early January, and he didn't, didn't do a damn thing about it, which means that prior to my optimistic scheduling of this year's holiday party at my home, before my hopeful announcement about this summer's listener appreciation party, the Trump administration, the president and Republicans knew about the virus and did nothing. And now they're all overcompensating. For example, Trump's repeated boasts about his courageous ending of flights from China, despite the fact that 430,000 Chinese have entered the U.S. since the Wuhan outbreak, and likely more, and 40,000 have still entered the U.S. since Trump's ban. So it's not my fault. Trump, his inept administration, his Republican Party that is more focused on profits than people, their political ideology of the market being more fair and equal, cost-efficient and mission-effective than democracy, wanting to make the branches of government merely branches of their business operations from which they can get rich. It wasn't my fault for displaying hubris by scheduling mine, my girlfriend's holiday party, or the This Is Hell Listener Appreciation Party in Art Show, This Is Art. Now, that's a relief. I guess the idea that I caused the global pandemic was as, as stupid as thinking, I don't know, 5G was launched before the virus, and the Washington Nationals won the World Series. And there still are contrails, so the outbreak must have been started by a Washington Nationals player, probably a forever anti-Trumper, who used their new 5G phone to control aerosol-spraying jets that sicken us all after decades of successfully dosing us with chemicals that caused our destructive consumer culture that has brought about climate change. If you do believe 5G caused the epidemic and... We may have upset you. You can email us and tell us what you think. The real conspiracy is, this is hell. We got an email sent to myself and Alex that Chuck, at chuck at thisishell.com and alex at thisishell.com. 
And this one is a guest suggestion from James. James writes, hi, Alex. Hi, Chuck. I hope you both are doing okay in lockdown. Sounds like you're still managing to see the funny side of things. And by the way, Alex, were you, I don't know about you, but were you kind of creeped out Tuesday by Robin Alex Lieben laughing about our doom? It was really, really, really freaking me out. Stepping on our turf over there. I know, exactly. When Alex was talking about not having faith in the food supply chain to deliver food this summer because of the inability of migrant labor necessary for food production to get to the U.S. to feed us, that really scared the hell out of me. All of a sudden, I, all I could think of as I was walking home was, how many tons of rice are on the block that we work at here? You know, we have four, four different grocery stores with tons and tons of rice in the window. And I just look at those every day. And as soon as I see those bags start dwindling, that's when I'm going to start getting worried. I'm seriously thinking about buying 50 pounds of rice today. <laughs> getting back to James' letter. James continues, I'm in the middle of reading a great book from Monthly Review called The Coming of the American Behemoth, The Origin of Fascism in the United States, 1920 to 1940 by Michael Joseph Roberto. It explores how American free enterprise could be little more than a guise for the fascism that just called itself fascism in, in Europe in the uh, early 20th century, which sounds really fascinating. It was published in January 2019, and I just noticed he didn't interview the author at this time. I thought it might be timely to see what he has to say in this pandemic era. I feel like the corporatist state response when we're all back at work is likely to tip into explicit fascism. I fear that too. I struggle to see fascism as anything more mysterious than capitalism's complete disdain for humanity distilled into some sort of nasty social grappa. Related is this article I found the other day. Capitalism had an international and it's going fascist from the journal Globalizations at the end of last year. You interviewed the writer, William I. Robinson, last year, and it feels crazy relevant now. Anyway, just an idea. Keep well. You continue to keep our spirits up in this household, James. Those are fantastic suggestions, James, and I forward them on to Alex. In the past, we would not have had an author on whose book came out like over a year earlier. But under the virus, a lot of books are being, uh, the publication of those are being canceled. So, James, thank you for the great uh, guest suggestions and uh, very well may have your guest suggestions on the air soon. And anybody, if you have any guest suggestions, send them to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com, Alex at ThisIsHell.com. Uh, and uh, especially even uh, books that have been out for a while because of all these publication dates getting pushed back later. We want to find the stuff that was that was relevant prior to the virus. John sent us an email with a suggestion on what we can buy with our $1,200 check that we will allegedly be receiving soon. John sends a link to an article. The $1,200 in your coronavirus stimulus check is exactly how much you need to build a guillotine. The story provides a link back to a 2012 Vice article on the varying costs of kinds of execution from the chair to hanging to crucifixion. The analysis has it all and includes this for the cost of a guillotine. Building a guillotine costs about $1,200. Lumber and hardware tools included add a few bucks. To that, if you want to pimp it out with paint, a pad for the chopping bed, and a basket to catch the head, you can learn how to build one. Doug Tepper, a Georgia state legislator, proposed its use at state ex executions back in 1996. It's actually sort of hard to argue with him. Decapitation is relatively painless and leaves the criminal's organs intact so they can be donated, or you could just not kill people. Thanks, John. If we uh, all do our part individually, we can have over 300 million guillotines ready by the fall. Phil also emailed us writing, yo dudes, get this. This is amazing. I am an offshored, he's in Costa Rica, I am an offshored Amazon employee who is old enough to be hearing podcasts during my schedule. 
Usually, I listen to Democracy Now! news reports on SoundCloud every day. The algorithm recognized I am a goddamn leftist and recommended me your show. That happened maybe at some point in February. I have a degree in finances, being stupid enough to start reading Marx's Capital. I finished my career being a rebel against capitalism. I am currently getting my master's at a local university. You invite so many top people on your show to speak about a wide range of topics, and you are so informed about the subjects they cover that I don't know how the hell you make it. You actually seem to have co-written the articles or books. Moreover, having so many years airing the program says something very good about you. As a consequence, I decided to subscribe to you on Patreon and recommend you to my friends and comrades. Hopefully they will join on Patreon as well. At present, I am a goddamn corporate MFer, but I've debt to pay. This is hell, isn't it? But you are freshness in my lockdown soul. Hearing you from my Amazon office located in Costa Rica. P.S. Hope to meet you one day at office hours. We'll invite you to a drink and give you the finest Costa Rican coffee I'm able to afford. Optimistically, your government will give me the privilege to step in with a visa. Take care, Phil. It always really surprises me when we hear from people all over the world who listen to our stupid show. We want more reports from you like Phil's. Tell us what you are doing while you listen to This Is Hell. Tell us what it is like where you are under the virus. Tell us about local news stories that are a huge deal to your community and neighbors, but others may not know about it. Share with us what is happening on the ground where you are when it comes to the bigger issues of our day, whether it's the virus, climate change, globalization, whatever. Phil, thanks for your email, and thanks to all of you all around the world who listen. Without your support, we would not exist. If you would like to subscribe on Patreon like Phil has, go to patreon.com slash thisishell. You can email us just like James, John, and Phil did at chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com, message us on Facebook, and on Twitter, coming up on today's This Is Hell, we continue our series of reports from our correspondents around the world. This time, we will hear about what is happening in Seoul, South Korea. During the Moment of Truth, Jeff Dorchin tells part one of a four-part fiction that closely parallels a certain TV doctor's career from caring professional to right-leaning snake oil salesman. And more of your answers to this week's question from Hell, as well as announcing this week's winner. I also have an update from Monday's monologue where I said that I could not wear a medical face mask because they fog up my glasses and therefore I could not go outside without risking my life. I do have a follow-up on that. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream and podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing is Alex Jerry. This is not contrarian radio. This is hell. South Korea, we are told, has done a great job in mitigating the worst aspects of the coronavirus that has caused a global pandemic, which has killed about 90,000 people worldwide. Luckily, we have a correspondent in Seoul, South Korea, who can tell us what's happening there. On the line with us right now, your regular correspondent Mark Flurry delivers some morning calm live from Seoul, South Korea. Despite having limited Korean language ability, Mark is able to translate and re-report Korean headline news. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Mark. <laughs> Do you know how long it's been since you've been on the show, Mark? Ooh, I don't know. A few years, maybe. Two years. The last time you were on, we were talking to you in April 2018. When there was the historic summit between South Korea's President Moon Jae-in and the North Korea's summit, uh, North Korea's leader Kim Jong Un, that's how long ago it was when uh, Trump was taking credit for that. So that was quite yeah, a, quite simpler a, times. Exactly, and ever ever since that happened, uh, North Korea and South Korea have unified and completely denuclearized. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, just got derailed by the virus. You know, we were headed that direction. <laughs> Why do I note a hint of sarcasm in your voice? <laughs> so uh, first, how are you, Mark? How are you doing? How are you and your family doing? Did you guys ever come down with the virus? How are you doing physically? Uh, I'm doing good now that I'm talking to you. Um, but, you know, like I think everyone in the world, I, I spend a few moments every day wondering if I have the coronavirus. Uh, but fortunately, seriously, my, my family and my kiddo, we're all doing good here in Seoul. And, you know, I hope that some of what I share about what's going on in Seoul is like a little reassuring to everyone who's listening. Although if you're in the U.S., um, it's not like this is a view in the future. It's not like we're ahead of the U.S. or something because you've seen the graphs like the U.S. has gone completely off the rails <laughs> compared to any other country. I don't even know how to um uh, put it into context. You know, Mark, the one thing that I found out when I was doing research for talking to you today is, and I couldn't believe this, I kept trying to make sure that this wasn't true, that the first reported case of coronavirus in the United States, that was on the same day as the first reported case in South Korea. We have this impression here in the United States from the media that it started way earlier in uh, South Korea, but it didn't. The other impression we have is South Korea was ready for this because they had already experienced SARS and MERS outbreaks in 2003, 2015, 2018. So, Mark, tell us, what's it like in South Korea? Yeah, so, well, just to, I guess, kind of work backwards a little bit, like right now it is, um, I guess it seems kind of under control. Is Although, like, I'm, it's, it's kind of um, hard to get your hopes up, but you know, for the past four days, there's been 50 or fewer new cases in the whole country. And, you know, before that, for the past month, there's been about 100 or fewer new cases every day. And recently, it's been that I think I think about 50 percent of the new cases reported every day are imported cases that they're catching at the airport. Um so that maybe says something good about what's going on in Korea and something kind of horrifying about what's going on in outside of Korea. If, you know, there's not many people coming into the country right now, like a few thousand every day, I think. And you have to go into a mandatory two-week quarantine if you do come. But there's been, like I say, about 50% of the new cases are actually coming from airports or ports. Um, and... Uh, so there is this ongoing social distancing campaign. Uh, you know, my kid's school has been closed since late February, and there's no real sense of when it's going to reopen. And they're kind of, they've extended it now to April 19th, and I don't think anyone really expects that it's going to end on April 19th, but that's kind of the, the current campaign. And um, I guess, you know, to go back to the very beginning, like like you said, you know, that started at the same time on January 20th, uh, both in the United States and Korea. And what's really kind of uh, amazing to me was as it was unfolding, you know, and they did the same thing with the MERS epidemic, was like whenever there'd be a new case in the country, you know, they would, there would be a story like, you know, the 18th case has been, uh, you know, found. This patient has been traced to, he got it from the 14th, you know, patient. I mean, it's all anonymous information, but they're sharing with the public like where, the kind of like network of infection has come. And, it, and if, if it is like the so-called, you know, community infection where they don't know where it came from, then they, they'll say that too. But there's this kind of idea that seems so alien and far-fetched, I think, to someone living in America that they can actually um, monitor the virus with that degree of detail and put that amount of resource into actually trying to stop it. 
um, you know, whether you can do it or not, they, they tried. Um, so wait, let me just ask you one question real quick, Mark. So how much do you think that constantly being informed, what impact do you think that has on uh, public fear and public morale? Because one of the concerns that uh, President Trump has said over and over again is that he does not want to spread fear and he wants to give people hope. And then we were talking to Todd Williams in Budapest and he said it's the exact opposite with Orban. Orban wants to spread fear and not give anybody hope so he can attain more power. So do you think that that being informed makes people in South Korea any less in fear or have any better morale than we f- we're afraid that we might have if we are honest with the American public here. Well, to put things in perspective, so the 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 2015 MERS epidemic, right, that hit it hit I think Asian countries the hardest. Um, in South Korea, there were 186 cases of MERS with a death uh, count of 36 people. Um, some schools closed for a little bit, and so that seems like nothing compared to what's what's happening, but. That, but you know, initially when that epidemic hit, the government withheld information, and that actually led to like a public outcry. And it, the president at the time, you know, a lot of people didn't approve of the way she handled it. And so, you know, not only did we in Korea build up resources, infrastructure to respond to an epidemic, but this idea that the the government should be transparent about it was was also something that carried like, you know, through into how they, they handled the uh, coronavirus outbreak. And, you know, it's it's worth noting now, like where you've probably seen all the like reports about how South Korea did this great job or whatever. Uh, initially, people here were, were pissed off about what happened and especially when the first major outbreak happened. And, uh, you know, there was, there's always uh, some degree of, factionalism or bipart or partisanship of course anywhere and in korea can get kind of extreme but there was a lot of uh there was a, a, a petition started by conservatives who and it was a 1.5 million people demanding the resignation of the president for his you know failures to um you know completely stop any coronavirus outbreak in south korea and there was a really dumb article uh in the new yorker about this about you know basically saying how South Korea botched the coronavirus response and that is aged terribly. But of course, now the president is like enjoying the highest approval rating he's had in a year and he's holding court with other world leaders, advising them on how to handle the virus. Um, but yeah, it's it's to me, it's this thing that um, like. You know, there was the the there was a well publicized outbreak in the Shincheonji uh, church where about I think about five thousand people, maybe about half of the cases in Korea are all tied to this one religious sect. And um, what you hear about in in the American news uh, mostly was at the time was just about like how weird this church was, right? And you know, granted, it is kind of a weird sect. There's some weird mysteries about it, um, but you know, the, what really happened was that, you know, there was this theory that there's basically one person who was responsible for, or not responsible, but you could trace infections back to this one sort of super spreader was supposedly some kind of, uh, elderly woman and the nickname. And well, this is a really nasty name. I don't like saying it, but it was called, she was called the, the 
public harm auntie. Oh, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, you know, there was some some gross stuff about like wanting to out her identity and stuff. Unfortunately, I don't think that happened. But um, uh, you know, there we like in the Western media, like I think they're really focused on like that the weirdness of the sect and not the fact that this virus spread so rapidly and infected 5,000 people. And, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, so when that happened, it was kind of a scary moment, uh, here and to see the numbers like be big every day, but then it was extremely reassuring when they actually were able to clamp it down and stop it in its tracks. Let me ask you something uh, real quick about that, the, about the religious sect, just because uh, The Guardian reported many of those tested are members of the Shinshinji uh, religious sect, whose members in Daegu City account for more than half of the cases. There are 53 drive through testing stations allowing people to check their illness without physical contact. In fact, the New York Times ran a story way back on March 9th that had the lead. The number of uh, confirmed coronavirus cases in South Korea neared 7,400 this morning, as many of them have been traced back to the mysterious... Shinjinshi Church of Jesus. The organization has become a lightning rod for the public's wrath and a ready outlet for long-standing prejudice. Is there long-standing prejudice against the Shinjinshi Church of Jesus? Is there? Did you know about this church beforehand? About any public antagonism towards them prior to the virus? No, I certainly never heard of them myself. <laughs> so um, I don't know what this article is talking about. You know? Yeah, that's true. I, 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 I don't know that. Uh, I don't know. They, apparently, there's some kind of weird. They have like a viral program where they try to infiltrate other churches and can get converts. I don't know. I try to stay a little bit. <laughs> I, I don't go down that rabbit hole too much. Yeah. So. All right. I just wanted to see if you knew anything else about it. Yeah, not too, not too much else. Right. And um, so you know, with that sort of you know, we tested uh, the Korea government tested basically all 200,000 members of this church. And they did it over like a period of maybe 10 days or something. And so during those 10 days, you saw the numbers like, you know, 500 people, 500 people. And it was like this huge jump, you know, 500 new infections found. And that was a scary moment. But the thing that actually scared me the most, um, and I guess this was probably back in late February, was like just when things were getting serious here, I talked to a friend of mine who was who lives in Chengdu, China. And it's um, he used to live here and he moved there. And um, it's not it's not in Wuhan. It's like, I think, probably at least a couple hundred miles west of Wuhan in China. And he told me the situation there and how, uh, you know, he couldn't go outside without a special card that would you know let him into the grocery store once a day. Like there was only one entrance in and out of his apartment complex. There were people in full biohazard suits at every building he went into, like spraying him down with disinfectant, you know, checking his temperature. And like, you know, I was worried about my friend and and also like it was just shocking to hear this. But just as an American, I just knew in my gut that the U.S. just would not be capable of that kind of nationwide coordinated response to this. And I think maybe Americans will disagree about, you know, why or whether it's actually the right thing to do. But I think everyone kind of knows in their gut that just right now we're, we're just not capable. Like, you know, the politics are just too broken or, or whatever reason you have. But I, um, that was the moment that really got me scared. And when I felt like the U.S. was really kind of going to be um, effed. 
<laughs> yeah, definitely. And that's what we were talking about uh, on Tuesday's show with uh, Rob Wallace and Alex Liebman. Alex is saying that uh, there's just no way that, uh, and where Rob was agreeing, there's just no way that the United States will put up with the safety and health, public health protocols that they've put up with in other countries. So I, I know that you have more to report on, but uh, there's been rumors here in the U.S. on social media as to how people have pr- protected themselves in China and Singapore and South Korea. And people aren't certain exactly what they should be doing. There's been rumors about people like doing the things that I do, which is I remove my outdoor clothes before I go indoors. The CDC isn't telling people to to do that. I remove my outdoor shoes before I go indoors. And there are a lot more protocols that people were discussing that they were doing in China that seemed a lot of people were saying on social media excessive and that they wouldn't be willing to do it. So what kind of what were you forced to do at the peak of COVID-19 in South Korea? I was forced to do very little. Um, uh, I guess there was there's no real requirement for a mask, although it's it's very strongly pushed. And there's actually like just a kind of a strong social pressure because you see everyone wearing a mask. You don't want to be the one <laughs> dude without the mask. You know? Hey, I'm the asshole. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but it you know, and I'm I think, well, just me personally, like as an American, like I've, I've tried to kind of sever my psychic link or, you know, umbilical cord with the U.S., but like somehow I'm still really affected by U.S. news. So I've been like I've gone into like kind of pretty extreme self-isolation, trying to order groceries online, not go to the grocery store, stuff like that, and always wearing a mask, trying to only go outside with my kid where I know it's not going to be crowded. But nowadays, like if I were to walk outside in my neighborhood right now, um, most people outside are wearing masks, but you'll just look into a restaurant or a bar or something and indoors people just take it off because um, it's like you can't eat with a mask on, I guess. Right. So <laughs> exactly. um, and I don't know if it's a false sense of security or what, you know, it's it's a weird feeling when like um, these kind of like socializing things for adults are open, but the, the schools for kids are closed. Um, and that's kind of been that way in Japan and other countries too. So um, I don't know, I guess the most reassuring thing just is that like, there is this coordinated response ready and waiting if, if, if there is another outbreak and that the, that the healthcare system, although is heavily stressed, is not, is not, you know, buckling <laughs> under the, the strain. And then yesterday there was, or it was on Tuesday, I think, there was the report of 51 South Koreans who had coronavirus, had recovered from coronavirus, and suddenly had a relapse of coronavirus. Has that changed the tone in South Korea? Are people starting to freak out again that there's going to be another wave of uh, pandemic? Uh, I don't think so. That's not the the vibe I get on the street, (laughs) but... um... Uh, you know, I, I saw the report too, and I'm no uh, epidemiologist, and I, I guess all I've heard is that you know sometimes that this test, the the test that clears people has, um, there's a chance of a false negative, right? So you could get tested and still actually have it, or it could be kind of like a low amount of virus, and it kind of reactivates later. So it's not clear that these are like reinfections, or they're just sort of reactivating the same infection. I think. So have you been tested? Uh. uh no, but you know, I, I've I've come close. Actually, today was the closest I've come because I've been feeling a little crummy, um, and uh, even if I have you know the mild case, I would like to know. And then I was I, there's a hotline I could call, and 
I was reading the the guidelines and they're saying, well, you know, you don't really shouldn't get tested just out of anxiety. You should wait at least till you have a fever. I don't know. That's what they said. So I don't really want to go to a hospital right now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but it's maybe a good chance to get infected if you go there. So uh, I, I don't know. I'm going to ride it out, I think. The, a lot of people here in the U.S. are concerned that, uh, you know, I don't want to go get my coronavirus test or I don't want to get any kind of medical, certain kinds of medical treatment because they just can't afford it because there's a barrier to entry into the medical uh, medical market. So do you have that same kind of issue in South Korea? Do you Are you concerned about cost when you're thinking about going and getting your coronavirus test? Uh. No, because, well, so if you actually have symptoms that qualify, which is something like a fever of like uh, Fahrenheit would be about 99 degrees or higher and maybe respiratory symptoms or something like that, then uh, you get a free test. Um, and if you just are anxious and you insist on being tested, I think it's about $150 to get tested U.S. Um, and there's, of course, the drive through option, too, if you have a car. And, um, yeah, you know, uh, one other thing I want to mention is, is that, you know, something, uh, that is also very useful for the public is the sort of information services that they've rolled out. So of course, like all of the data on like the number of people infected is public, but also the tracing information. So when someone gets infected, like in your neighborhood, you could go and look at a map. Um, and I think, you know, it didn't take Google or some huge internet giant to make this map. I think it was just some dude that used the data that the government provided, the one that I've been using. Um, and it'll show me like, uh, you know, here's this patient and it'll show me all the stores he went to. And it, with a couple notes, like, oh, he went to this store and he was using a mask. Uh, or not using a mask. And uh, so in, in my neighborhood, there were something like 13 people, or I think I think about 13 people in my district of, of Seoul. And I could see that one of the guys went to the grocery store that I'd been going to. He didn't go there on the same day that I went, but I know when he went, I know he was wearing a mask. Um, and I also get like sort of emergency alert uh, messages anytime there's a new patient um, in my district, which is about so it's about, to give you, it's about a district of about 400,000 people, and there's maybe been like 15 cases or something in my district. And um, not only that, but this, this system has now been upgraded, um, like at least from what I was reading, to the system where like now as soon as there is a positive uh, uh, test case, they do this trace on that person, like I guess through interview data, also through credit card usage, and they make that... Um, information available within 10 minutes of the person being tested. So, you know, you're somebody who is a co-designer of a video game. You've been doing a lot of coding and throughout your life and you understand what it's like here in the United States. How much do you think people here in the U.S. would put up with that kind of surveillance, if you will? Uh, how oppressive do you feel that that surveillance is when you're living in South Korea? And do you think that people would tolerate it here in the U.S.? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's a big question, I think, with privacy, all these issues. But I guess one one thing is that there's probably all, you know, you probably have your data being collected. It's just not being put to very good use. It's being used to, <laughs> being used to try to sell you stuff for maybe more nefarious purposes. And, you know, this is just this feeling of like, uh, you know, if there's any time for like 
you know, if we do have a big, big brother apparatus already built around us, like at least this is the time to like put it to some good use. But America just seems like we're not even capable of doing that. So that's the sad thing. But you don't feel freaked out about a police. Do you feel freaked out about uh, a police state in South Korea sometimes? Uh, no. I mean, you know, there's different social tolerances. Like there's CCTV cameras everywhere, like in playgrounds. Like as, as soon as I walk out of my house, I'm on CCTV or in my elevator and people kind of like that as a sense of security, you know, I guess um, I I have very mixed feelings about it, but, uh, you know, I think it, you have to have faith in democracy and your government to feel at all okay about it. And I guess I generally have feeling like that this is um, a pretty well-functioning democracy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, real quick, your partner at Drool, where you make Thumper, is the bass player from the band Lightning Bolt, Brian Gibson. I've seen pictures of you two from last year working in your office together. Are you working together or remotely? How, how has it affected your work on your video game? Is it weird not to be in the same office with somebody, even though it's something like a video game that you can work on remotely? Oh, yeah. Well, we made that game over a period of many years, most of which I was in Korea. So we did make it work. And I think that picture you saw must have been the one time he came to Korea and we actually got to work <laughs> in the same physical space. It's a n noteworthy thing. Um, yeah, we're kind of doing different stuff now. I mean, we're still in, in touch. We're kind of maybe working on different games. And I mean, the, no, the the real factor for me is just that there's no one to watch my kid during the day. His preschool is closed. So I'm kind of a full time dad again. Uh, so I'm not getting a whole lot done these days. I did see the drawings, uh, the mock-ups the, for your game, Thumper, and, dude, they're they're really stunning. My niece uh, is now doing storyboards for the animated uh, TV series Archer, and I huh. so I sent her those images, and I was like, you got to see the images that they did for their mock-ups. They're, dude, they're really stunning. You should think about selling those. They're really cool looking. Who did the drawings, you or Brian? Uh, I'm not sure who you uh, – if they were the early, like, ones, it was probably this this – this great artist called Matt Brinkman. Oh, okay. Who kind of came from the same like Providence, uh, like late '90s scene that uh, you know, well, we'll that's how Brian knows him. Um, but yeah, he did like kind of the concept art for Thumper. I think that's who you're talking about. Yeah, they were really spectacular. There's one of the playing field, if you will, uh, that is really cool. And there's one of like the villains, like uh, mock-ups of the villains' faces that are really awesome. All right, Mark, I got one last thing that I gotta tell you. I gotta ask you about. My, uh -huh. There's one great story about the COVID-19 outbreak in South Korea. The only good news is, according to a very suspect website called the Seoul Times, they quote a Dr. <laughs> Hong Chung-hoon of Rural Development Administration in Korea who speaks confidently of how kimchi can scientifically prevent <laughs> SARS. The doctor says a chemical compound called allicin in garlic is key to preventing SARS. When allen reacts to allinase, allicin is produced. Allicin not only gives garlic its characteristic strong odor, but also produces antibiotic chemicals, which is thought to help to prevent SARS. The story goes on to say how garlic can be used as a Remedy to flu has always has already been proven by Stanford University professors. SARS is speculated to be caused by coronavirus, which causes respiratory diseases such as flu. Dr. Hung uh, explains that garlic and kimchi could react against SARS virus in the same way as garlic does against flu. The spreading information of kimchi's effectiveness in preventing SARS coincides with the dramatic increase in SARS, but at the same time, the article says, maybe that's why so many Koreans are not getting SARS, because they eat kimchi. Mark, I love kimchi. Tell me that it will save me from SARS. 
Well, it's got a good as chance as uh, whatever the malarial drug is, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, lo- I love that kind of food nationalism. I've always heard about like Italian doctors prescribing Parmesan cheese, you know, to their patients. And stuff, so. <laughs> so yeah, why not? All right, Mark. It's always great to hear from you. I'm going to be bugging you in the very near future. It's not going to be two years. Now that you've had your kid for a while, you're used to it. I can bug you more often. It's great to hear your voice, sir. And uh, I hope everything is well by you and your family. And I hope it continues to stay well. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right. Take care, Mark. Ah, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is Hell. And we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for listeners who support This is Hell in a Moment, as well as have the moment of truth this weekend's Hangover Cure and what's happening on the show next week. During this week's Moment of Truth, contributor Jeff Dorchin tells part one of a four-part fiction that closely parallels a certain TV doctor's career from caring professional to right-leaning snake oil salesman. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, but what about the landlords? What about the landlords? Leave your answer at our Facebook page, email it to us, or tweet it at us. And all that stuff is at our Website, thisishell.com. Alex, do you have any more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah, we got a bunch, so I'll go through them fast. Uh, strike Against Genocide says, this is all via Twitter. Strike landlords Against Genocide. Can, yes, <laughs> the landlords can charge rent and evict people all they want. They'll be put through people's public trials when this is all over, all the same. Would a strike really work at ending genocide? If no one leaves their house, <laughs> maybe. Uh, Pavlos Rufos, past favorite guest, <laughs> one of our favorite guests, says, stolen but worth repeating. How about we give them the same treatment as healthcare workers got? Instead of paying rent, people should come out in their balconies once a day and applaud them. <laughs> uh, Jack W. says they ought to pick themselves up by their bootlicking straps. <laughs> Zach e says, please don't sped, spread fake COVID rumors. Leeches don't work. <laughs> but what about the landlords? But what about the landlords? Brian says, I'll wipe them down too. <laughs> Old Jackfruit says the capital and capitalism should be a clue. The biggest reason us proles might get a check from the feds is to protect rentiers and bankers. Mm, loved the use of rentiers. Free the MFing snake says owning property is not a job. Time is short says. <laughs> it actually can be quite, quite a What job. about him? Uh, the Dems have coronation virus says they can have one of their apartments, but we get to pick which one. <laughs> Russ Mayo says they may have land, but they're not deserving of the title Lord. <laughs> Come on, who is? Derive Column says, lynch them. Lynched landlords, of course we effing do. Back to that crass one from a couple weeks <laughs> exactly. ago. Mr. AB says some animals are more equal than others. Red State Red says, I believe Jello Briafra settled that question many years ago. A couple more. <laughs> what about the landlords? What about the landlords? Rock Taser says they are stuck with their mortgages. Sean says, who, me? I rent one room out of my city home. I own more debt than land. I'm no Lord. Unless someone else driving Uber to pay part of my mortgage is a kind of feudalism, I guess I am a landlord. <laughs> but hey, at least it's affordable, market-driven feudalism. Lunatic Cringe says, One plump landlord could feed many tenants during these trying times. Tara D says, When they claim when they demand rent because they depend on it, reply that you'll be claiming them on your taxes this year. <laughs> and finally, Gorgeous G says, Sill my landlord. C-I-L-L. If he's trying to avoid getting in trouble over there. I see. Hey, uh, Alex, mark that Pavlos Rufos uh, response because uh, that might be my favorite so far. Uh, I just don't have it written down over here. So, Mark, make sure you keep that in mind. On Patreon this week, it's part two in our three-part series of the four times I have had trouble at the U.S. border. Last week, I told Patreon patrons about the first time I was busted at the U.S.-Canada crossing in Detroit. Lesson learned, holding... 
while crossing an international border in a car with a bumper sticker that says pot smokers have bigger joints. Not a good idea. Also, it was not my car. We're also playing our 2009 conversation with uh, Kristen Lombardi, who wrote the investigative piece Coal Ash, the hidden story of how industry and the EPA failed to stop a growing environmental uh, disaster that was published at the Center for Public Integrity. A byproduct of coal may actually be worse than the coal mining and burning itself. And if we get back to the pre-virus normal, you can bet we will be burning a lot more coal than we are under the virus. And that normal would also mean a lot more environmentally devastating coal ash. Let's remember the normal before the pandemic sucked. Kristen won the 2007 Alt-Weekly Award for Investigative Journalism presented by the Association of Alternative News Weeklies. In 2007, Kristen was recognized for her Village Voice story, Death by Dust, the Frightening Link Between the 9-11 Toxic Cloud and Cancer. A lot of you know about that story and probably didn't know that Kristen was the person who broke it. But you can only hear that if you subscribe to completely listener-supported This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. You can also show your support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can help out This Is Hell, including all of our merch. Remember, we are 100% listener-supported. We don't get any support or any money or any kind of resources or revenue in any other way but from you. Real quick follow-up from Monday's monologue where I said I would not be wearing a face mask because they fog up my glasses and not being able to see is probably a greater threat to my health and safety than COVID-19 because I have to cross a major street twice a day without being able to see anything. I would likely be dead within a very short period of time. Well, it turns out there is a fix for your glasses being fogged up by a face mask. According to an article at Fast Company with the so clever headline, How to wear a face mask without fogging up your glasses. See, I told you it was clever. One solution is to create an absorbent layer between your nose and your eyes to effectively soak up any moisture before it can fog up your glasses. Folded up piece of tissue paper could do the trick. In medical masks like the N95, there's sometimes a metal nose clip that allows you to create a better seal around the bridge of your nose to prevent moisture from entering or leaving the mask. If you have a homemade mask, you can try to create a similar mechanism by incorporating a metal piece that can be adjusted to the shape of your nose. Some people have been using pipe cleaners or paper clips, I would suggest the larger flat versions of uh, twist ties that you find sometimes on coffee bags. Those seem to look work exactly like the kind of thing that you use on an N95 across the bridge of your nose. So again, the name of that article is <clears throat> how to uh, <laughs> how to wear a face mask without fogging up your glasses at Fast Company. So if there are people who are listening who are wearing glasses and have a difficulty with that, that's where you find it. Coming up during the Moment of Truth, contributor Jeff Dorchin tells part one of a four-part fiction. And we'll also have the question from Hell Winner and who is on next week's shows. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week were written while I was very, very high. This is Hell. My guess is you already have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The Good Doctor, First Dose. Welcome to the Moment of Truth, the thirst that is the drink. Though I call him the Good Doctor, he's not good. He's not a bad doctor necessarily, just a bad person who happens to be a doctor. Or a good person who found a way to opt into a bad system for glory and profit. 
Either way, the good is tongue-in-cheek, or ironic, or sarcastic, or sardonic, perhaps all simultaneously. The good doctor recently apologized for having repeatedly repeated Donald Trump's irresponsible talking points that COVID-19 was no worse than the flu, calling it a press-induced panic from as early as April 4th. On March 10th, he mocked people for heeding New York Mayor Bill de Blasio's advice to avoid riding the subway. He continued to mock and downplay legitimate medical advice about avoiding exposure to the virus all the way until he gave a contradictory lie on March 31st to try to cover his ass and only officially admitted being wrong in an apology via Periscope feed on April 4th, less than a week ago. He'd had a change of heart, or a change of mind, or the facts changed, or maybe he was simply making a minor tweak in a discrete component of the overall structure of his brand. I could have told him, when you echo whatever echoes in the right-wing echo chamber, you will make mistakes. This time it might turn out to have cost thousands of lives, we'll never know. Although we can assume the damage he did by boosting bad information will have been large. I always wonder how a somewhat reasonable person transforms into a jolly rider aboard the right-wing bandwagon. The good doctor was in fact a good person at one time, Or perhaps he was a bad person who happened to stumble into the business of helping people. He was a specialist in addiction and addictive personalities way back when. And in pursuit of that specialty, he had a clinic where he helped a lot of people, including people who couldn't afford to pay him. Poor people. He helped the poor. That's pretty good. And knowing what he's become, it's hard to figure out why he was so helpful to those poor people or to anyone else. It was almost as if he didn't know any better. He didn't know he had the option to be a thoughtless, selfish person who happened to be a doctor. That's my current theory. The same reason a lot of young people get married and have kids without even knowing why, except that that's what's done. And when they find out later they had a choice not to be spouses and parents, some of them try to find a way out of those circumstances. Not all of them succeed, but the good doctor succeeded in escaping his circumstances. I don't believe it was his intention to escape when he first stepped out the door, but once he'd traveled out of sight of his old circumstances, there was no question of his ever going back, back to being good in some way. Good and bad are subjective terms, we can all agree, and yet there are overlapping qualities any socially functional human being can point to. The lines may be blurry, the territory they mark out amorphous, But the boundaries and the territories are there, for most of us, by agreement. Still, the good doctor's journey from one territory to the other bears describing, if only to contribute to an understanding of where the boundaries between them might be. Dr. Pictus is his name. He bears a resemblance in the lineaments of his career, as well as those of his physiognomy, to Dr. Drew Pinsky of radio and TV notoriety. But Dr. Drew is an actual living person. Here, we are discussing a fictional person who just happens, by pure coincidence, to evince those resemblances. Why drape this fictitious facade over a real-life story? I wanted to add some made-up incidents that were important to the arc, basically. 
I honestly don't understand what happened to turn the real Dr. Drew from a reasonable person to a right-leaning media bottom feeder, but I found that creatively imagining scenes behind publicly available information, everything fell into place. Yes, I could have contacted him and interviewed him, trying objectively to weigh his version of his own tale, but that would be dishonest. I harbor great hostility toward the man, and it wouldn't be fair to him for me to pretend objectivity when I was researching what was bound to be a hit piece, and so mostly to protect the real Dr. Drew Pinsky from me and my lies. I've gone to the trouble of inventing a fictitious, somewhat parallel person. Andy David Pictus, M.D., is his name. He goes by the name Dr. Dave now. One of the few media figures brandishing the label Dr., who is in fact a member of the American Medical Association. He came from a good Jewish family who would never think of misusing the title the way Dr. Terry Toynbee and Dr. Neil Edwards, both also fictitious, have. Andy was always going to be a doctor, a medical doctor, from the start. No single incident led to Andy's interest in addiction, but we know his mother was addicted to caffeine. That might seem a little silly. Oh, poor woman, you might snort haughtily. But Mrs. Pictus got terrible migraines when the java ran out. A kind of pink, luminous foam would begin lathering at the periphery of her vision, accompanying a pain like having a trowel shoved into the base of her skull. The foam would bubble like acid, burning the edges of her sight until all she saw was its blistering effervescence. Even a slight underdosage of caffeine could bring a spell of migraine. Andy witnessed his mother several times, screaming, heels of her palms pressing hard into her eye sockets as she wandered blindly through the house, scattered as it was with used coffee cups, acrid dregs stagnating in the bottoms. Don't tell me there was anything particularly good-hearted about his choice of specialty just because it was inspired by his mother's pain. He had to pick a specialty at some point. It's more a testament to his lack of imagination than than his empathy, that he went into addiction medicine and opened his clinic in Oakland, California. All he did was latch onto the first human weakness he could understand. Could have been anything. Andy got married fresh out of undergrad, took the MCATs and passed the first time, as did his wife. They both did their rotations at Rush Presbyterian in Chicago. The mutual support they displayed during those years was admirable. In academics and work ethic, they were an exceptional couple. It's tempting to believe that anyone who can maintain such a marriage must possess some inherent goodness. But that would be a mistake. Again, it's more likely a semi-conscious conformism and a barely suppressed fear of loneliness were at work in both the husband and wife than any rarer virtue. Who is good, then, by these definitions, you might demand? And, well, you might. I understand your frustration. It may appear to you that I'm merely attaching the worst motives to actions of which the real ones are unknown to me, to avoid admitting the goodness of the good doctor. Could be. Could be. But listen. Continue listening, because whatever virtue Andy seemed to display in those years, and the ones immediately following, he either lost or jettisoned or never really possessed. Myself... I would find his story far more tragic if I thought he'd ever had a truly virtuous cell in his body. His wife joined a psychiatric practice in Oakland. 
and Andy set up shop as a GP, all the while with an eye to turning it into an addiction clinic. Little by little, he referred his non-addiction patients to other GPs. They, in turn, funneled their addicts his way. The local lifestyle in Oakland and San Francisco at the time offered more than enough grist for his mill. Heroin was everywhere, and then crack came up from Los Angeles. Business was booming. Within a few years, he was getting research grants and hiring his own staff. After publishing a few entertaining articles in the Chronicle, he was offered a syndicated column. It ran in only three papers, but they were the L.A. Times, The Guardian, and the Bakersfield Tribune. So he developed a respectable readership from the Bay all the way down to Marina del Rey and eastward to the edge of the Inland Empire. By then, he had adopted his well-known clean-cut look, that crew cut, and those little glasses. His face was simply clean. His radio and TV partner, Mel Canola, would later say of him, He's the kind of guy who's handsome because nothing's wrong with him, kind of like a prototype human waiting for its warts and stuff to grow in. He had the boyish face that recalled Radar O'Reilly, but leaner, a little less naive, but naive nonetheless because of his Mr. Spock-style clinic speak. He was disarmingly earnest and unpretentious in public, and those characteristics translated surprisingly well to radio. He was solo on the radio at first. He did his show for free at the left-wing Pacifica radio station, KPFA. He had by now realized how much younger persons' needs to feel part of a social group impelled them to risky behavior, and more than just trying to fit in for fitting in's sake, a young adult longed for, and feared the absence of, sexual companionship and the approval of a sexual partner. Dave's call-in radio show became as much about escaping bad relationships and avoiding STDs as it was about addiction to drugs and alcohol. It was at this point that a producer for a commercial station in L.A. heard about Dr. Dave, as he had begun to call himself, and had one of those ideas that are so crazy it just might work. Dr. Dave would feel calls from troubled teenagers, many of them drug abusers, victims of sexual abuse, engaged in risky behavior and harboring untreated infections. All the program needed was someone, a sidekick, to bring out the hilarious potential of such misfortunes. That's where we'll pick up the story again in part two of this four-part expose. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. You know you haven't made it in journalism until you're published in the Bakersfield Tribune. Oh my God! You kidding? What a highbrow uh, loaf of whatever. What I don't. Know. Hey. I've never read the Baker. I imagine that would be something that you would subscribe to. <laughs> it does sound like something I would subscribe to. Hey, uh, yesterday the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, she singled out the ward that we are in right now, the 50th ward, for not actually participating within social distancing. She said she drove up to the ward and she saw groups of people hanging out at the corners, talking to each other, w breaking all the social distancing rules without wearing any masks whatsoever. And she just was really upset And that this ward is the ward that has this neighborhood, West Ridge, has the highest number of confirmed cases, but it also has some of the highest rates of testing in the area because a lot of people in this neighborhood have people who they know who are healthcare professionals, including I talked to people who run stores 
shows around here, and that's where they're getting their masks from. They're not buying them from a store. They're getting them from people who they know. So uh, it's just funny that this is the ward that the uh, the mayor singled out as being so bad. <laughs> you know, it's the it's the most ethnically diverse neighborhood in the United States, and uh, it's really so. It's just it's just a weird. It's just a different place than everywhere else in the city, as you know, Jeff. So she only singled it out because of the high number of cases reported. No, she was only singling it out because she found out about the high number of cases reported. So she dr- had, was driven up and oh, drove so up she, to the neighborhood. And then she saw uh, all these people out on the street hanging out together uh, in the corners. And what's really weird is, so people are like, oh, this is like Afghans and Pakistanis and Indians who they just don't understand. No, it's a lot of white crackers. That's what I'm seeing at corners. <laughs> a lot of meth heads talking to each other in very close proximity with each other. I, you know, it's not, if it's a cultural thing, it's that culture, not some other culture. Right. Well, you know, I don't. They they have a lot to talk about. Meth heads. <laughs> they do. Where to get meth? It's a <laughs> real issue meth, right now. You who's know. Who's got it? <laughs> exactly. Uh, now I, I last night was the first night of Pesach. Mm-hmm. Hag Sameach. That's some good Hindu. yontiv. That's suck. that's Hindu, right? <laughs> and um, I I had my first Zoom seder. And my first three martini seder. I never thought I never thought the word zoom and seder would ever go together because <laughs> it's not really a zoomy event, you know. Not at all. <laughs> it's a long, boring thing. Although you know, all the seders I've had since my my grandfather and uh, since since having old seders in the Detroit area, uh, where they would really do it. Uh, they've been so much shorter now. I, <laughs> I had I had a seder at a in in Morocco at an Orthodox guy's house, and I, that took no time at all. <laughs> I, I don't even remember. I just remember eating. <laughs> and then he like he gave me a cigarette, uh, which you're not supposed to smoke on Pesach. He was a scofflaw, is what he was. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jeffy. Alex has to uh, go take care of his kid. Okay, take care of that kid. All right, so stay beautiful. You too. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from Hell is what about the landlords? What about the landlords? The person who has our favorite answer will get 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers. Alex, do you have the rest of this week's answers to the question from Hell? I got too many to do today. Really? So I'm going to have to shunt the, yeah, let's shunt these to uh, Monday. I'll wrap them. Yeah, there's a lot. And then we'll give the uh, winner on Monday? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll work. All right. So uh, we'll, I'll tell you my answer to this week's question from hell. We'll announce the winner on Monday. We'll give out the rest of this week's answers to the question from hell. So you still have a few more days to put in some more. And so I think we'll have a very long list of answers to this week's question from hell on Monday. Alex, who is on Monday's show? Uh, still working it on a Monday. I think it's going to be Debs Bruno and Medway Baker, who wrote the cosmonaut piece, The End of the End of History, COVID-19 and 21st Century Fascism. Which is kind of cool because Malcolm Harris, his book is also discusses how uh, it was the end of uh, history in the early 1990s and how that has proven not to be true. Uh, what about uh, Wednesday or Thursday? Uh, Wednesday, Malcolm Harris is going to be on the show. Sweet. So we uh, rebooked him to talk about 
Shit's fucked up and bullshit. History since the end of history. And, and Thursday, uh, Brian Meir will be uh, reporting to us from Brazil. And Malcolm Harris has a new article, or newish article at Commune Mag about COVID-19. So if people want to read what he's been writing more recently instead of just his collection of essays over the last 10 years, you can find that at Commune Mag. Again, that's Malcolm Harris. Uh, anything? Let's see. Thanks to this week's guest, lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow, Helen Yaffe, author of We Are Cuba. Since 1995, Helen has spent time living and researching in Cuba. You can find that interview at thisishell.com, and you can follow Helen on Twitter at Helen Yaffe, Y-A-F-F-E. Thanks to Rob Wallace and Alex Liebman. If you have not heard that interview yet, you have to go back to uh, our Wednesday or a Tuesday interview with Rob and Alex, co-authors of the monthly review article, COVID-19 and Circuits of Capital. And more importantly, go read that article at the monthly review. It is really, really intense. And thanks to your regular correspondent, Mark Flurry, who delivered some morning calm live from Seoul, South Korea today. This week's Hangover Cure is a Louisville hot brown, as we announced on Monday's show, which consists of Texas toast topped with sliced turkey breast, Mornay sauce, a cheesy bechamel, and bacon, which sounds delicious right now. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when I will tell you about the second time I had a problem with border agents and we'll share with you our February 2009 uh, conversation with Kristen Lombardi who wrote the investigative piece Coal Ash, The Hidden Story, How Industry and the EPA Failed to Stop a Growing Environmental Disaster, reminding you that the normal everybody wants to get back to was not normal and was not that great. I hope to see all of you at some point in the future at This Is Hell Office Hours that we will have again someday on Friday nights when this nightmare is over. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry. As always, we could not do the show without Alex, without Jeff Dorchin, without Ronaldo Magaldi, and without Theron Humiston, and especially without your support. So please go to thisishell.com and click on support to show your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell, or go to patreon.com slash thisishell and subscribe to our Patreon podcast. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show, on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.